0: Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio.
1: And now we begin to focus on the New Testament, and our reading today will come from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Some false teachers uh, had started carrying forged letters of recommendation to authenticate their authority. In no uncertain terms, Paul stated that he needed no such letters. The believers to whom Paul and his companions had preached were enough of a recommendation. Paul uses powerful imagery from famous Old Testament passages predicting the promised day of new hearts and new beginnings for God's people. No human being can take credit for this process of conversion, it is the work of God's Spirit. And we'll read that Paul was not boasting, he gave God the credit for all his accomplishments. While the false teachers boasted of their own power and success, Paul expressed his humility before God. No one can claim to be adequate without God's help, as no one is competent to carry out the responsibilities of God's calling in his or her own strength. And we'll uh, read today here in this passage of Scripture that Paul recalled the stone tablets on which God had written the Old Covenant, calling it the Old Way. He identified the law and Although leading to death is nonetheless glorious because it was God's provision and proof of his intervention in the life of his people. But that which was summarized on stone is nowhere near as glorious as what came with the new way, life in the Holy Spirit. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, his face glowed from being in God's presence. Moses had to put a veil over his face to keep the people from being terrified by the brightness on his face and uh, from seeing the radiance fade away. The veil kept them from understanding references to Christ in the Scripture. When anyone becomes a Christian, well, that veil is removed, it's taken away, giving eternal life and freedom from bondage. That person can then be like a mirror reflecting God's glory. And now let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. August 29th, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 through 18. Are we, Paul and his co-workers, beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. The old way, with laws etched in stone, lead to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. The old way, with laws etched in stone, led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way? which makes us right with God. In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds, so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Our reading today from the book of Psalms will come from Psalm chapter forty three, verses one through five, where it speaks about the holy mountain. Well the holy mountain is Mount Zion, of course, in Jerusalem, the city that David named as Israel's capital. The temple was built there as the place for people to meet God in worship and prayer. You hear the reference quite often in Scripture about going up to Jerusalem. And that is literally true. From any direction you approach the holy city, you're always going up because it sits on God's holy mountain. we will also read here, the psalm writer asked God to send his light and truth to guide him to the holy mountain, the temple, where he would meet God. God's truth provides the right path to follow, and God's light provides the clear vision to follow it. If you feel surrounded by darkness and uncertainty, well, follow God's light and truth. He will guide you. Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5 Declare me innocent, O God. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars. For you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed me aside? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. I will praise you with my harp, O God, my God. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Proverbs 22, verses 8 and 9. Those who plant injustice will harvest disaster, and their reign of terror will come to an end. Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor.
0: The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Last week, we started a new series um, that we titled uh, Living Sacrifice. That phrase comes straight out of the text that we, uh, that we went through. So we're, we're looking, we're going through a section of Romans, Romans 12 through 15. And really, Paul, Paul says to these early Christians, he's basically saying, you know, have you heard all that I've said about faith in Jesus, right, up to this point? chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. You've heard me unpack biblical doctrine. You've heard me unpack all of the ways that God saves us and we go from sin to sanctified and all these things. And I've I've explained how you come to know Jesus, how you come to know God. Now, if you believe in Jesus, if you come to a point where you say, I believe this, I accept this, then live like this. Then live like this. And so the the first 11 chapters of Romans... um, is really like a summary of Christian doctrine. And then 12 through 15 is the practical outworkings of Christian living. If you believe in this, then then this is how you will live. This is how you will live. What we know is that we don't have to bring sacrifices to the altar. We don't have to shed blood. You don't have to measure your good works versus your bad works. It's it's, it's not right to say, you know, well, Christianity is really about the good people getting in and the bad people, you know, are out. What, What Paul makes clear is that Jesus' bloody sacrifice was the end of bloody sacrifices. But if you believe in what Paul's saying, if you believe that Jesus is the way, then your whole life will become a living sacrifice. Will become a living sacrifice. Because if you come to the place where you realize in the depths of your heart, in the depths of your heart, that you are in fact a sinner. And when you realize that God, at much expense to himself, costing him his life, saved you, you realize that there's nothing that he can't ask of you. There's nothing he can't call you to. There's nothing he can't ask of you. So, so we don't put God in our debt. Our good works don't merit us any sort of favor with God. When we approach, we approach Jesus with faith, total belief, and repentance, turning from our sins, turning from our old ways, and he accepts us, and God sees us as Jesus, his perfect son, because Jesus traded places with us. Jesus' death in this sense is our death. Why? Because sin requires punishment. Injustice requires justice. We all know this. If someone was a pedophile, you don't don't just turn your head and let them go free, right? People want justice for evil acts, and this is true for God. For God to be good, he has to do something about evil. And what happened is that Jesus, who'd never sinned, willingly traded places with sinful humanity or in order that when we put our faith in him, God accepts us. God accepts us. And so the big idea there is Jesus, perfect Jesus, traded places with you and I and took, on, took the full-on weight of our offenses to a holy, just, and good God. And that's why we call this the gospel. That's why we call this the good news. Because it is good news. Because we're accepted by God because of Christ. So for God to be good, he had to do something about sin. He had to. And when we understand this, it changes us, right? It changes us. So if people never quit worshiping themselves, the world's always going to be a selfish, selfish, greedy, and hostile place to live. Why? Because because of the prideful sin that's, when, that's within every one of us. And it's especially highlighted in those that are, that are in active rebellion against this God. And so this is why Paul says, if you understand what I've told you about God, you'll be living sacrifices. And then he begins to break down some of the implications of this statement. So let's, let's look to our text this morning. We're in uh, Romans 12. having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in, in our serving the one who teaches and his teaching the one who exhorts and his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness so there's a lot in here but what we're going to look at is is just three aspects of this and so and so first the bi- the big thing that we're going to say is 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 don't think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. And we're going to unpack what that means. Secondly, we see, we see this non-negotiable commitment to the local church. And then lastly, we see that, that all of us have gifts, and Paul exhorts us to use them within the context of the local church. So first, don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. So what do we, what do we mean by that? Well first of all I kind of stole this phrase somewhere Tim Keller used it in one of his sermons somewhere. But let's look at verse 3. He says for the by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so here Paul is reiterating this idea of being a living sacrifice. Um, But he's using more direct, he's using um, understandable language, and and in effect, what he's saying is hey, listen, this this isn't all about you. This Christian thing isn't all about you. Christianity isn't simply about your preferences and your comfort and your personal successes. And so the phrase, the phrase here, sober judgment, in the Greek means to be sane, to be sensible. To think and live wisely in self-control over one's passions and one's desires. So contrary to that idea, how often do we hear Christians, right? We hear the church, we hear Christians mauling over their calling, their passion, their pipe dreams, their gifting. And so often, people might not say this, but really deep down, what they're, they're kind of wrestling with is, oh, I'm just waiting on God to kind of shoot me down some heavenly assignment. And it's massive. You know, that'll cure cancer or, or end disease or change the culture of the youth, right? We're just waiting on God to shoot us down some inspiration so that we can do this massive thing for God. Or, or on the other side of that, you've got the folks that, you know, criticize the church and they criticize Christian culture and they describe all the right ways that things should be done and how they would do ministry and how it would be so much better. All the while, they're not doing anything. Right? Why is, what is this? Why is this? Well, this is, in my opinion, this is West, but in my opinion, I think it's a blending of our American individualism, you know, I can do this on my own, my way, Rambo style Christianity. It's blended with um, American individualism and this idea of calling or spiritual gifts. You know, and to be honest, I think it's often fragmented. There might be a, t- you know, there's a hint of truth in there. Like, I oh, yeah, had sounds good, but it's, it's fragmented. It's not the whole truth. It, it's not the whole biblical message. So how so? Well, if we were honest, we've all seen power abused. We've all seen uh, influence used to manipulate people. And, and, and couple that with the fact that our culture tells us that we're self-made. And so if we believe that we're self-made, it's easy to respond to lesser fortunate people by saying, you know, oh, well, well those people are poor because they're lazy and they don't want to work. Well, maybe. But see, it's naive to think that your success or my success is a byproduct of our genius, You know, for example, I wasn't in charge of what family I was born into, okay? I I, I didn't get to pick my parents. I didn't get to pick my environment. I didn't get to pick my opportunities. And neither did you. Fortunately for me, I was born into a great family. I was born born into a, a, a family that taught me and nurtured me and challenged me, and a lot of people don't get that. A lot of folks don't get that. But our culture teaches us that if you try hard enough, you can have whatever you want. And I think there's some truth in that, but I don't buy in that. I don't buy into that. I don't think that's the whole story. And, and if we believe that, if we take that at face value, I think what happens is this kind of thinking produces a bunch of little entitled narcissists. And we blend this with Christianity. We take that and we throw it into Christianity, and, and we let our culture we let our American individualism define our Christianity. And so what happens is it becomes all about my calling and my gifting and my family and my dreams and my ministry. There's way too many mys in there. It, all, it becomes all about me. I serve God to put God in my debt so that God has to do things for me. And that is not biblical. And that is not Christianity. And it's crap. And Paul is saying, don't get down on yourself. You know, don't have this false humility. humility. Don't, don't, you know, start refusing to take compliments. Don't don't lower your self-esteem for the sake of the gospel. Oh, poor me, I'm just getting by. You know, don't settle for that garbage. That would be thinking less of yourself. No, what I'm saying is think of yourself less. That's a big difference. What are we saying? Instead of being consumed with thinking about your needs and your dreams and your desires and your hopes and your wants. Think about the people that God has placed right in front of you. Who has God placed right in front of you right now? Think about the church. Think about the whole community of believers. And thank God that Jesus didn't live like this, right? Imagine if Jesus came down and he's like, hey, everybody, by the way, I'm the son of God. Bow down and give me a Coke. You know, like, I mean, he he didn't do that. Jesus served. Jesus gave of himself. Jesus sacrificed. Jesus spent much time with orphans and widows. Jesus, at much expense to himself, did mercy. He loved. He, he, He invested in the people that were right in front of him. I mean, we saw that in Mark. He'd been doing it for days. He was exhausted and he still gave of himself. He still gave of himself. And that's what being like Jesus means. That's that's a part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means to think of yourself less. The idea there is you're just not on your mind as much. And that's a problem for all of us. Right? If we were honest, even the good stuff we do most often is selfish. I'm going to help them because it makes me look good, or because they'll you know they'll owe me. That's selfish. It's your that's sin, right? We're selfish. And and really, also, if if we believe this, if we live this way, then we're not sitting around just waiting for God to shotgun us down some inspiration. You're simply living like Jesus and serving those that are right in front of you. Because what we do is we sit around and we wait for God to give us this, I'm just waiting for for God to tell me my calling. And all the while, there's these people all around you that are in need of the gospel. There's these people all around you that are in so much need, and you just overlook them because you're so focused on your calling and your needs and your wants and i think i think we need to notice something else here so second point we we see in this text and this goes hand in hand with the first is that we see this non-negotiable commitment to the local church what in the world does that mean and this again this ties beautifully with the first point but let's look at verse 4 and 5 he says so paul says for as in one body we have many members And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We skip over this idea a lot in the American church, especially. Why? Because our culture, our culture has a really heavy-handed emphasis on on the individual instead of community, instead of the group. It's just our culture. It's how we, you know, there's some good in that, but like like anything else, we make it we make it an ultimate thing. And it becomes negative. So this idea of one anothering, this idea of community, it's often not even considered. It's often not even considered. So, for example, uh, people—I mean, something that people get hung up probably more in the past year than anything else I've noticed—is people are often like, "What in the world is church membership?" Like, I don't, I don't, I don't see the words church membership in the Bible, and they'll just go on and on and 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 I get it. I lovingly just listen, but I've got this on this. I've I got this on the screen, but really. Church membership is language we use that embodies the idea of a radical commitment to one another as a local church. Church membership is language we use that embodies the idea of a radical commitment to one another as a local church. And listen, what we have to understand is the New Testament assumes this kind of relationship, this kind of commitment. Paul would, you know, Paul in his writings, when you, just, when you really dissect and read all of his writings, Paul would be like, duh. Of course you're supposed to be responsible for one another. Of course you're supposed to be generous with one another. Of course you're to correct one another. Of course you're, you're to train one another. There's no biblical precedent for solo Christianity or Lone Ranger Christianity or, or Rambo-style Christianity where you take on, you know, you, you do this thing for Jesus. There's no precedent for that. And, I, you know, I've read, I've read the articles and their books that have been written, and, and there's a lot of stuff coming out here recently, especially with this idea that, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't go to church. Or, um, or, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm not involved in a local body of faith. And I, along with 2,000 years of church historians, would say that that's explicitly unbiblical. It's not like a maybe, a gray. It's like the New Testament doesn't even have a category for that. And so the question is, can I be a Christian and not be committed to a local church? And in essence in essence, listen, that's like asking how abnormal of a Christian can I be and get away with it? How abnormal of a Christian can I be and get away with it? Because again, there isn't a category for that. And it doesn't fit at all with with all the teaching about community and accountability and discipline and the responsibility of church leaders and, and serving and deacons and on and on and on and on. So the answer I would give is if, I understand that some of this is the case if somebody has an extreme situation with their health or whatever. But I would say if you're deliberately not committed to a local church, you're being actively rebellious against what the Bible teaches. So this is just one example among many. Again, again, the text says, four and five, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let that sink in. That's not me. I didn't write that. And the reason I'm harping on this isn't because I like to or it makes me feel good. The room got really quiet, but because I feel like I need to. I feel like I need to because given the fact that our individualistic culture, it airs badly in this area. We air badly in this area. So you see and you hear it all the time. Um, we, we, we often talk about the church like we talk about them all. I go to that one for this and this one for that. and and, and <laughs> So a sample dialogue might be this. You know, oh, hey, bro, where do you go to church? Well, I don't. You know, the last one I went to just didn't do it for me. Or, uh, or I don't like the music. Or, uh, you know, one of the ushers gave me a weird look, so mm, can't do that. Or, yeah, I go here and, you know, I go here and there. I go there for the, and I go to that church for the music, and I go to that church for the teaching, and I go to that church for the kids' ministry. And I hope, I hope this logically just starts to make sense because in this kind of thinking, if that's, if that's us, if that's you, that leaves no room for accountability. That leaves no room for community or commitment. You're just a consumer. The church is like a mall. You know? I make better t shirts, so I'm gonna go over there. This is on sale, so check this one out, right? That's what we do. And I'll say this 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 should be dub, but we, we get so offended so easily. And I just want to say there's no perfect group of people. There's no perfect group of people. Where there are people, there is sin. Okay? And so with any church, you're gonna find sinners, you're gonna find hypocrites. You know, people are like, oh, the church is a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, so are you. You should feel like family when you go. (laughs) And this whole idea of commitment is right here in this passage. I mean, let this sink in. Verse 5 says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And this is the big one. And individually, members of one another. Do you see it? Paul is saying, you're members of one another. You're responsible for one another. You're family with one another. There's no room for isolated Christianity. And how I pray that that the American church begins to see this and repent of this and change this. We're called to commit to a local church, to serve it, to give to it, and be held accountable by it. This might sound radical to you, but that's... Listen, you got to understand, that's because we live in America. It's what the New Testament teaches. So when someone asks us, where do you go to church? Well, our response should be something in the sense of, you know, brother or sister, whatever, whatever language. Bro, we are the church. But I gather with this group of believers over here, or over here, or whatever. Because, see, the church isn't a building, or a program, or a place to be spiritually entertained and served, the local church is a gathering of radically committed believers of Jesus Christ, who though many are one body in Christ. And listen, I know what some of you are thinking. This isn't an infomercial <laughs> to become a member of, of Refuge Church. Many of you already are. And, and, and if you aren't, listen, pursue biblical membership somewhere, okay? Okay. Pursue membership somewhere. Become a member of a church that preaches the whole counsel of the Bible, that worships Jesus alone, that rightly performs the sacraments of communion and baptism, and that takes Christian community seriously. Become a member of a church like that. And if it's not here, praise God. Just become one somewhere. Commit to people. Commit to other believers. Become more like Jesus. And invest your resources in that church. One more quick example, and then we'll move to the last point. If you're not committed to a local church, okay, and committed is the key word there, word there what will happen is this. When hard times come, because they will, they will come. Um, when temptation comes, because it will. When you're wrestling with the practical outworkings of what it means to live like Christ in some real, real life scenario at work, what do you do? What do you do? The New Testament church gives us a clear picture of early Christians bearing one another's burdens. Calling each other out on their sins in loving and redemptive ways. Serving members in need. Meeting together in homes. Eating together, praying together, doing life together. That's what the that's the New Testament church. And so if you're engaged in that, if if you're in that, and you have to pursue it. You're not just waiting on somebody to call you your name. And you, know, you have to pursue that. And when you're engaged in that, you're not going to be able to stay in sin. Why? Because you're going to have brothers and sisters in Christ that love you enough to ask you tough questions, to encourage you when you need encouraged, and to talk you through difficult situations. And it's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect. But you're not going to be able to stay in sin. So without a radical level of commitment, there's no real hope for biblical gospel transformation. There's no hope for gospel-centered community. There's no real there will be no manifestation of the New Testament church without that kind of commitment. So this is why we need a, the radical commitment. We need to be radically committed to a local church, and this is a non-negotiable in the New Testament. Last point. Thirdly, we all have gifts. So 6-8 talks about how we all have gifts and we must use them in the context of a local church. So let's read 6-8 again. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul says, by God's grace, those of, you know, those of you that put your faith in Jesus Christ and are saved, that God has enabled each and every one of you with specific gifts that are to be used for God's glory and for the edification of the church. You know, not for selfish gain. And so prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generous contribution, leading, mercy. Paul gives seven examples of gifts here. Um, that God gives to his saved people for the use of the betterment of the body of Christ, the church. Hopefully we see that. So begin to ask yourself, how has God uniquely wired me? How has God uniquely gifted me? What passions and desires has God put in my heart that I can utilize for the glory of God and for the building up of the local church? And so this infers... This infers that it's not the pastor's or the teacher's jobs to do all the ministry within the local church. This is a common misunderstanding, especially in the professionalization of of church pastors and staff. So so my primary job is to go before God in prayer, to study God's word, to wrestle through opportunities and challenges with the elders, to cast vision along with training and equipping, um, you know, people for the work of ministry according to Ephesians 4. So my calling is to feed the church, to teach the Bible, to protect the church by confronting false teaching and those that might try to manipulate or corrupt members. My role is to disciple leaders and to pray for the church. Biblically, those are the primary. I mean, there's other stuff, but those are the primary roles for for pastor elders. And so the Bible uses this metaphor of a body to say that the church is like a body. Each person is a different part of the body meaning that we need everyone to utilize their God-given gifts in order for our body to function in health and efficiency. So again, what are your gifts? What are your gifts? What are your passions? What can you do to bring glory to God and to build up the local church? Use your gifts. For some, it's serving. You know, you're just a, you're just a server. You love to serve. For, for some, it's prayer and encouragement. For some, it's leadership and mobilizing different teams and strategies. For some, it's administration. For some, it's mercy. You feel called to help those who can't help themselves. The orphans and the widows, like we see in Acts 6. How has God uniquely wired you and uniquely placed you to bring glory to his name and to edify and build up the church? And some of us, what we need to do is we need to repent because we need to turn, we need to confess. We, we've, been, we've sinned in this area because, because we haven't been, we've been in active rebellion against God in this area because we haven't been committed to a local church. And we've been doing so um, on purpose. Some of us need to pray and ask God to forgive, you know, ask him for forgiveness for just not loving his church. And again, there will never be a perfect church and there will never be perfect people. And so it's our responsibility to do the best we can to love and serve and lead the local church, to look as much like Jesus as possible. And that means we're going to have to do a lot of confessing and repenting. It means I have to do a lot of confessing and repenting. But the message Paul is giving here is in radical opposition to solo Christianity. This is in radical opposition Opposition to autonomous living. We're being called into the uncomfortability of living with our masks off, if you will. We're, we're called into the uncomfortability of being honest. We're called into the uncomfortability of becoming vulnerable. We're called into the uncomfortability of giving ourselves for the cause of Christ. And you know, what happens is when we start to think this way, there's those thoughts that come in our head. What if they use, what if they use my honesty against me? What if, what if they talk bad about me? What if they might, you know, they might become jealous of me or they might try to hurt me? And friends, in closing, we have to remember who's gone before us. Jesus is the prototype example of someone who became vulnerable to the point that it cost him his life. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that people accused him of being a drunk and a glutton, someone who hung out with prostitutes. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that he was betrayed by his closest friends. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that falsely accused, he was beaten, mocked, and was ultimately nailed to a cross. And he did this for the very people who deserted him, the very same people who'd beat him, the very government that condemned him. And and what we have to, and where it becomes personal is, you have to realize that he did this for you. That he did this for you. That right now in this room, condemned you sit, a sinner and a hypocrite, and the cross of Jesus is still enough for you. Jesus suffering was the ultimate suffering so that in our little sufferings our little trials our little our little you know things that that really take us off course he 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 did the ultimate suffering so that we could be with him so that we could know him so that in our little sufferings we become more like him and 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 make it even more personal. We have to realize that you're not, you know, I'm not a nobody. You're not a nobody. The Bible teaches that you're an image bearer of God eternal. And at much expense to himself, he suffered to have relationship with you. And this relationship trumps all other relationships. This relationship with the triune God is the relationship we're all made for. This is the relationship that we all crave for. And because of Jesus Christ, it's made available to each of us. So put your hope in Jesus today. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't don't think less of yourself, but because you don't have to prove yourself to anybody, because God welcomes you in, because of what he did on the cross, because God accepts you in Christ, you can think of yourself less. Commit to a local church. Engage in using your gifts to serve a local church. Be a living sacrifice. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself in your word. That you're so gracious to us. Man, I love Ephesians 6, that even when we were sinners, you died for us all that we would know the grace that you had on the cross. We don't even have a category for this, but that you could look out and you could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Help us to have that kind of forgiveness. God, grow that kind of grace in us. And I pray that we'd all be compelled to be followers of you because no one else lives like that. No one else could respond like that. We've seen people respond in vengeance and, and 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 anger and rage and and I'm gonna get them back because they hurt me, and you did the exact opposite. And there's those of us in this room that are just an active rebellion against you, and you're beckoning us towards yourself. Just like you did on the cross. You're the ultimate example of vulnerability. You're the ultimate example of honesty. You're the ultimate example of a deep, deep loving commitment. And I just pray that, God, we would this morning repent of this sin. We'd repent of our shortcomings. We'd repent of just our rebellion against wanting to just be autonomous and wanting to do our own thing and, and, you know, taking bits and pieces of the Bible and trying to apply it and in turn being our own little God. I pray that we would surrender to you this morning. We praise you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from The Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about The Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org. And that'll do it for today's podcast. Everyone have a safe and
1: blessed weekend and make sure to tune in next time to Transformation Radio.